Welcome back, everyone, to part two of Princess Diana's death, titled, Was There a Conspiracy? This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. So many questions and theories have arisen in the past 24 years since the accident which took Princess Diana's life, that accident occurring at 12.23 in the morning of August 31st, 1997, that it would take a room full of paperwork to try to answer them all. There are parts of the overall investigation into the causes of Diana's death which we would like to focus on here, and we'll list them right now at the outset. The goal is to review the elements that caused or may have contributed to Diana's death. She herself believed that there was a plot to kill her, so that obviously deserves to be covered, and we'll share what investigators did to look into that question. I don't believe MI6 or French intelligence was involved. It just doesn't make sense as those agencies are beholden to public scrutiny. But there are still those in this story who are convinced that one or the other, or some type of similar group, was involved in some way. I do entertain the idea that there may have been a plan discussed by someone in the royal family, and possibly entertained by just one person or a select few, very secretly, perhaps in meanness as a sort of verbal abuse, perhaps in earnest as a means to disturb Diana enough to be able to declare her unfit, it may also have just been a product of Diana's paranoia, largely caused by this abuse. It may have resulted from some cruel words which she somehow overheard, and which were never acted upon. If it was indeed a murder plot, it was most likely put out there on the dark web in the form of a contract hit, and not offered up to the nation's intelligence agencies, and from there it would have been considered by a mercenary with a proven track record. We will also do a deep dive into the driver Henri Paul's condition that night. There are questions surrounding how his legal limit was arrived at, but when you look into it, it doesn't look good for him. If nothing else, his reaction time was likely compromised. Was he the sole cause, you ask, or were there other factors? There were other factors, for sure, and they should have been mentioned in the Paget report, and when mentioned, have carried more weight. We also need to look more closely at the witnesses to the tunnel incident, as well as the dangerous condition of that Mercedes, to see if a pattern emerges that would indicate an attempt to involve its occupants in a crash that night, or if the condition of the car was tragic oversight on the part of security, under Mohammed Al-Fayed's management, and the witnesses at the tunnel are as good a place to start as any. The irony would lie in the fact that the limos available at the Paris Ritz, as well as the security team and the drivers, all fell under the responsibility, ultimately, of one man, Mohammed Al-Fayed, the owner of the Ritz, who was the loudest voice when it came to accusing MI6 of an assassination plot. First, we need to share the stories of the witnesses to the crash to see if we can make an accurate assessment of what might have happened to cause the Mercedes to veer out of control, which it did. The first is a man named Patel, who was riding his motorbike toward the tunnel entrance when he was passed by the Mercedes, which was traveling fast. As he entered the tunnel, he heard what he described as an implosion, followed by the scream of an engine. Seconds later, he heard the sound of an auto hitting concrete. He parked his bike outside the tunnel entrance and ran in, fearing the worst. As he ran in, he was passed by photographers on scooters who were headed into the tunnel as well. They formed the vanguard of the paparazzi which had followed the Mercedes from the hotel. The scooters being slower, they were trailing behind the speeding Mercedes. He soon approached the site of a terrible wreckage. The Mercedes that had passed him was wedged up against a concrete piling. The photographers were parking their bikes and some were approaching the car, some snapping pictures and taking video, 
others coming closer to help, or gawk. One appeared to be opening the back door. Patel got close enough to look and saw Princess Diana inside that door. A man then rushed by him saying he was a doctor. Patel said, I will go for help, and he did, running back to the tunnel entrance and soon finding a public phone. He got an operator and asked her to have an ambulance sent. His Indian accent was getting in his way, but she finally said she understood. Then he tried to call the local police and couldn't get an answer. He got an operator again and asked where the nearest police station was, and she told him. He went back, got his bike, and hoofed it to the police station. He went in and said, I want to report an accident. The front desk asked him to sit down. Then they called him over to the desk and asked him where the accident was. He wasn't saying the location Point d'Alma correctly. The gendarme at the front desks there had been no reports. He was getting frustrated now. His Indian accent was getting in the way. He described where it was. Minutes were ticking by. Then a call came in that alerted the police to the fact that there had just been an accident in the Point d'Alma tunnel involving Princess Diana and that it was likely caused by the paparazzi whom witnesses said had been chasing the Mercedes into the tunnel. A uniformed officer then came out and questioned Patel, and he described what he had seen. He also said that when the Mercedes passed him going into the tunnel, there was no paparazzi chasing it who was close. They came a little later. The man asked him where his camera was. Patel said he didn't own one. Then the man pulled out a pair of handcuffs and cuffed him. Patel was furious. The police had wasted a half an hour from the time he came in to report the accident, and now he was being handcuffed. He shook his head and sat down. Hours later, he was released, and his story was never taken. He was never called up for the French inquest. He believed he knew why. The way they had acted was an embarrassment. They should have taken a full statement. He told interviewers later that he did see a white Fiat leaving the crash scene. After arresting five of the paparazzi at the scene of the crash, the French police were sure they had their criminals. Many hours later, when they received news of Henri Paul's blood test, which clearly indicated that Paul was intoxicated three times the legal limit, they let the paparazzi go. With news of Henri Paul's drunk driving, they felt they had their killer. Another witness was a British solicitor, who we call attorneys in America, who told officers about two mystery vehicles which seemed to be fleeing the crash. Incidentally, neither have ever been traced. He wasn't the only one who reported two large dark vehicles, as we'll find out soon. That witness, whose name was Gary Hunter, believed that one of the two vehicles was shielding the other, suggesting in doing so that one of the cars could have hit Diana's Mercedes. There was also an American couple who say they witnessed a car crash that killed Princess Diana, and they believed that her death was no accident. Robin and Jack Firestone said they witnessed the aftermath of the car crash in the Pointe d'Alma Tunnel, Paris, on August 31, 1997, and they also reported seeing two dark cars at the scene. They told the Express that they were stopped by British and French authorities in giving testimonies because the information they offered raised questions about the crash. Robin Firestone says she saw two dark and mysterious cars that had apparently stopped in front of Diana's Mercedes, and she believes they were involved in the crash. The Firestones, along with their 11-year-old son Brandon, had entered the tunnel in Paris just minutes after the crash. They were in the back of a taxi on the way to their hotel. As their cab pulled up to the destroyed Mercedes S280, Robin noticed two formal cars in front of Diana's. It stands out in my mind so vividly to this day, Robin told the Express. 
I could not understand why they were there. They looked at odds with what had happened. I saw those dark cars, and they must have entered ahead of Diana's. They were just awkwardly parked, and I don't recall anyone being in them. The two cars had to be driving ahead of Diana's car. The investigators buried all reference to them, but they were there. At the time of the crash, the Firestones did not realize who was in the car. The mystery vehicles have never been traced. That one remains a mystery. I have trouble picturing a roadblock in the tunnel, and if there was one, why the Mercedes, speeding at or near the equivalent of 65 miles per hour, didn't pile into it. If these witnesses are right, where did those two dark vehicles come from? The Firestones saw no emergency services activity at the scene, so they assumed that the accident had happened some time previously, not just minutes earlier. There was only one police officer stood at the car, and a lot of photographers, Jack Firestone told the Express. Now you conspiracy theorists can wonder if this was really a police officer, and if it was, why wasn't he trying to help the occupants? Their testimony continued. He was acting as if it didn't seem like an emergency at all. We thought the survivors had already been taken off to the hospital. It wasn't until the next morning that, that they realized that the blonde woman whom they had seen pulled out of the car was Princess Diana. Robin said that when she offered her testimony to authorities, she was told, They have enough witnesses. Don't worry about it. She was dumbfounded. One of the most famous women in the world is killed, and they don't want to speak to witnesses? That seems to be a pattern in this story. Over the next few days, the Firestones say that they repeatedly tried to give a statement to police, only to be turned away. It was clear the French, and the English later, didn't want to hear my testimony, and you need to ask why, says Robin. I do not think Diana's death was an accident, and the action of the authorities makes me believe that to this day, more than ever. The whole crash was an establishment thing, said Jack Firestone. We live in fear today because of what we saw and what we were told, says Robin. The couple claimed her death was not an accident. I think the crash was a royal thing and other forces were involved, adds Jack. Something bad could still happen to us. There are enough nuts out there who might try to silence us. The Firestones ended their interview by saying, I hope that one day, as William and Harry grow older, that they want to take responsibility to find out what really happened to their mother. If it was my mother... I would definitely want to know. I hope that someday they will find out the truth. There is one more witness story we'd like to share. This was eyewitness Jacques Morel, a record producer. He says he saw a dozen people at the scene moments before the crash that caused Diana's death. He was convinced, after finding out that the wreck involved Princess Diana, that those people expected to see her Mercedes brought to a halt by another car. UK detectives working on the inquiry into Diana's death headed by former Scotland Yard chief Lord Stevens, considered his account so important that he was flown to London and interviewed for three days. Morel was driving home with his wife Mufida that night and recalled, As we entered the Alma Tunnel, I looked to my left and saw about a dozen shady figures on a tiny pavement by the side of the opposite carriageway. They were all standing in a long line. The sight was unforgettable. The pavement is only about a foot wide and next to fast traffic. They would have been breathing in petrol fumes, and it was very dirty down there. It was certainly not a sensible place to stand around. If accurate, Mr. Morell's recollections are important because they suggest that the route Henri Paul was taking was known in advance. Up to that point, investigators had been thinking that Henri Paul had only chosen this route in an effort to shake off the paparazzi. 
Morel said that all of a sudden there was an almighty bang and a great big flash of light. Immediately my wife and I knew there had been a crash, he said. My first thought was that those we saw inside the tunnel were connected in some way with the crash. Those witness accounts suggest that something beyond the normal happened within the tunnel. But whether or not it was a planned roadblock or an orchestrated attempt to sideswipe the Mercedes, we may never know. We do know that the Mercedes came in contact with another car before it crashed. Analysis of the wreckage of the Mercedes revealed that it had a glancing contact with a white Fiat Uno car, which left traces of paint on the Mercedes bodywork. Extensive attempts by the French police to find the vehicle involved were declared unsuccessful. However, as you will soon learn, they may have had it and overlooked it. Although no one had seen the Fiat in the tunnel, some witnesses reported seeing a Fiat Uno exiting the tunnel. Mohammed Al-Fayed alleged in his July 2005 statement to Operation Paget, and at other times, that the white Fiat Uno was being used by MI6 as a means of causing the Mercedes to swerve and thereby crash into the side of the tunnel. Al-Fayed further alleged that the Fiat Uno was owned by a French photojournalist named Jean-Paul James Andinson, a security services agent, according to Fayed, who had photographed Diana while she was at his villa in Saint-Tropez in July of that year. A disgruntled colleague of Andenson informed Fayed's private investigators that Andenson owned a white Fiat Uno. Andenson's death by suicide in May 2000, Al-Fayed claimed, was either due to guilt over what he had done or because he was assassinated by the French or British security services to silence him. Operation Paget found that the white Fiat Uno Andenson owned had been sold in November of 1997 to a garage in Chateau where police found it propped up on blocks and unfit for driving. The left rear light had been replaced, and the paint matched that of the mystery car that had left its mark on the Mercedes. However, the Fiat showed no traces of a collision and was repainted, so they said, before the accident date. The French investigators stopped there. We do not know if they asked the garage why they had paid for a car that they had deemed unfit for driving and had taken the trouble to put it up on blocks. We don't know if they were asked to validate the date of the purchase or the date it had been painted or if they had done any bodywork on it. Questions, questions. As revealed in Part 1, Andenson told French investigators that he was not in Paris at the time of the accident. He was a very pesty and arrogant photographer. He told them that while in Saint-Tropez he had made a deal with Diana that he could photograph for a half hour every day. After the half hour, he promised he would leave her alone. He said... Listen, I shot her half-naked in Saint-Tropez. Why would I want to hang around the Ritz and take the same photos everyone else could get? Which listeners might beg the response, if you were able in some way to cause her to crash, those gruesome photos would be worth the fortune, would they not? But, but the police never mentioned that, even though they might have been thinking it. Andenson also claimed to have a rock-solid alibi. He said he had left his home in Liniere at 4 a.m. on August 31st, driven to Orly Airport, then flown to Corsica on a photo assignment. He produced a highway toll receipt, a plane ticket, and a rental car bill. Where were you the previous night, the night of the 30th, they asked. Andenson and his wife testified that he was at home and they were sleeping together. Curiously, his son James Jr. told police, I don't know where my father was at the time of the accident, but one thing was sure, he was not at home. If the son's account was correct, then Andenson theoretically could have been in Paris at the time of the crash, 12.25 a.m., 
and made the 150-mile drive back home before leaving the airport at 4 a.m. But in truth, an even better suspect emerged. There was yet another potential Fiat driver who was let off due to a convenient alibi. At 6.10 a.m. on November 13, 1997, three detectives closed in on an apartment in Clichy, just north of Paris, and arrested a part-time security guard and bodybuilder named Thon Lee Van. For reasons he never clearly explained, Thon Lee Van and his brother had painted his white Fiat Uno red and changed its bumpers shortly after the tunnel crash. Note the word bumpers, plural. That means it took punishment from the front and the back. Chemical analysis showed that the original paint on that Fiat matched the paint that had been left on the Mercedes in two places. What's more, Thon's car had a rear grille for transporting dogs. You might remember the two witnesses, Georges and Sabine Duzon, who were returning home from dinner in their Rolls Royce and had just joined the Seine Embankment Expressway at approximately 12.30 a.m. near the tunnel exit when they saw a white Fiat Uno being driven very erratically upon exiting the tunnel. In it, they saw the driver, as well as a dog wearing a red bandana in the back. According to a 2007 article in The Guardian, titled, Diana Inquest Witnesses Identified the Driver of Lurching Fiat, they saw the white Fiat Uno swerve from side to side as it emerged from the tunnel in Paris, where Diana, Princess of Wales, was killed. They were called to the inquest and picked out the same possible driver from a lineup of pictures. Georges and Sabine Dozon identified former security guard Lee Van Tan as the man they may have seen driving the car erratically out of the Pointe d'Alma tunnel in the early hours of August 31, 1997. Mr. Dozon said he had had to brake to avoid the car and that he saw the driver adjust his rearview mirror as if bothered by something he saw behind him. I thought he was drunk, he told the inquest. The Dozons were shown a series of photographs at the High Court inquest in London into the deaths of Dodie Fayed and Diana. The pictures included one of the photographer, James Andenson, the man Fayed's father, Mohammed al-Fayed, believed was at the wheel of the Fiat Uno, but neither one picked him out. Lord Stevens' inquiry into the deaths of Diana and Fayed concluded last year that there had been contact between the Mercedes in which they were traveling and a white Fiat Uno, but he said that it was unlikely the Fiat would ever be traced and that the crash was a tragic accident. In fact, unless it was Tan's Fiat, that car has never been found. The Duzans were shown two pictures of Lee Van Tan. In one, he was sitting in the front seat of a red Fiat with his pet Rottweiler in the back cage, and in the other, he was leaning on the bonnet, which is English for hood, holding the dog by the lead. Ms. Duzan said, Well, it is very difficult, but I would say the man in the first two photographs rings clearly the bell. Shown the images separately, Mr. Duzan also singled out the first two images. I saw someone who looked like the person I saw. And I saw a dog behind in the car. But it is far away in time, he told the jury. Lord Stevens's report referred to the driver of the Fiat Uno who owned two Rottweilers and had his car resprayed from white to red, but the individual was not named. However, the former Met Police Commissioner's report pointed out that French experts had ruled out the car in question because there was no trace of collision damage at the likely point of impact. Which raises, of course, the question that maybe the body part had been replaced. And there is this little nugget that just emerged. In 2006, Tan Lee Van's father gave an interview in which he alleged that his son had resprayed his white Fiat red just hours after the Diana crash. The father claimed his son had called his brother in the middle of the night and asked for his urgent help in changing the color. Van Tan claimed his father's interview was part of a family rift, 
but pageant investigator Dave Douglas did not forget Van Tan. He was unfinished business, he said. But nonetheless, they never went any further, and apparently the business was finished. Which leaves us with more questions. Why did they not pressure Van Tan and his brother? What about tunnel camera pictures from that front entrance camera which snapped a picture of the occupants of the Mercedes just moments before their death? Was there a picture of the white Fiat Uno? Was there a picture of the two matching black mystery cars? Or was this all locked in those French closed files? So many questions. I do believe that reports of a white Fiat which was seen leaving the crash scene are valid. So did detectives who went to his home, as we just heard. Tan, who described himself as a master dog handler, had to restrain his two Rottweilers when detectives entered his bedroom. In addition to them, he also owned a pit bull. It seems he didn't want anyone surprising him at home. His dossier reads that he was already unfavorably known to the police. Everything seemed to point to Tan, but he had an alibi. On the weekend in question, he told the police he'd been working as a night watchman at a Renault car lot in a nearby suburb from 7 p.m. Saturday till 7 p.m. Sunday. He said another man was working with him, but he couldn't recall his name. He also told police that he often lent his car to his brother. But don't worry, he never did it on weekends. In the French dossier, there exists no written record indicating the police ever checked Tan's alibi or questioned his brother concerning his whereabouts on the night of the crash. Tan was released several hours after his arrest. That same day, the police wrote, Removed from suspicion, on his file. Remember, in their minds, they had their culprit, Henri Paul. All this was just stagecraft to show they were staying busy. A final note on Tan Levan. A reporter from The Sun went to Levan's home, bringing an interpreter to make sure they understood everything he told them. At first he was very open and constantly smiling. He said he'd already spoken to French police and that they told him there was nothing to worry about. The journalist was doing a very thorough article recalling the events of that night and started pressing Levan on his movements that night. But at that point he became less friendly. The journalist made mention of the British investigation and when he did, Levan said... You know what the French police told me? Don't go there, meaning meaning don't testify at Operation Pageant. He said, Not the same law in France. Don't go there to England. It's the police, which means they don't agree with each other. The journalist was stunned. He wrote, The man whose car had clipped Diana's speeding Mercedes, leading accidentally probably to the crash, had been allegedly instructed by the French police not to assist the British into their probe of the accident? the French police potentially telling a crucial witness to not assist a lawfully constructed investigation? I was gobsmacked, wrote the reporter. And with that, he wrote, Levan turned his back and walked away, never to be heard from since. But I think you'll agree that we now have a likely scenario. Tom Levan might have been driving drunk that night, or stoned, or both. Let's assume he was in the tunnel driving at 25 miles per hour, and veering, making it very dangerous to pass him. Henri Paul comes barreling into the tunnel at 65 miles per hour, very proud of himself for gaining some distance on the paparazzi, and very sure he could handle anything the tunnel had to offer. He sees the white Fiat Uno loom up suddenly in front of him. Even if he breaks, there will be a collision. He's going too fast, and the Fiat is going so slow. The Fiat's in the passing lane, but swerving dangerously into the right lane. Paul takes the only choice possible and tries to outrun him and slip through on the right side. 
he catches the right rear corner of the Fiat bumper. The Fiat swerves toward the Mercedes, denting its driver's side with its right front quarter panel and front bumper corner. The hit is hard enough that Henri's car swerves into the wall to its right, giving the Fiat Uno the second it needs to accelerate forward and out of danger. Then the Mercedes, now out of control, swerves left and into the concrete column. Lee Van Tan knows that if he stops to help and is arrested, he'll be in serious trouble. He's driving under the influence, and he might go down for manslaughter. There's nothing he can do to help the people in the Mercedes. He drunkenly but determinedly drives out of the tunnel, still swerving, where he's seen by witnesses again, and headed for home, where he will find a way, with his brother's help, to avoid the police. Again, the ultimate irony, Henri Paul gets the blame for being drunk and causing the crash, while the real perpetrator escapes all responsibility. That's one very distinct answer to what happened. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Back to Andenson. As stated earlier, on May 4, 2000, two years after the French investigation had been closed, Andenson was discovered burnt to a crisp in the smoldering ruins of his BMW. I had originally thought it was on his property, but as it turns out, the car was hidden in a thickly wooded area near the town of Milau, 190 miles from his home. I went to the scene immediately, recalled Alan Durand, then the state prosecutor in Malau. It was clearly no ordinary affair. The investigation concluded that Anderson's death was a suicide. Anderson had purchased a can of gasoline on the day of his death at a nearby service station. He had also removed all his cameras and photo equipment from his car and left them in his study in Linier. The most convincing clue is what Durand called a virtual suicide note a handwritten letter by Andenson to the head of the SEPA photo agency, asking them to pay all photo rights to his wife. It was mailed on the day of his death. But, but Hubert Henrat, the founder of the Gamma and Sigma photo agencies, and who worked closely with Andenson for 25 years, believed that Andenson did not commit suicide. He remains convinced that French or British secret services were at the bottom of it. He said Andenson was an Anglophile, maybe living in France, but interested in all things English. He dressed like a Briton, flew a Union Jack over his house, and had changed his name from Jean-Paul to James. He also spent a lot of time with influential British people. He always kept a small recorder in his pocket, said Enrot, and whenever he traveled with someone important, he would record them without their knowing. He knew way too much. Six weeks after his death, three men broke into the office of SIPA, Andenson's agency, and carted off laptop computers, hard drives, and cameras. The manager there, however, said none of Andenson's material was touched. He believes the intruders were thugs hired by a well-known TV celebrity who thought the agency had compromising photos of him. Was that just a story, to save his own skin, or the truth? It seems that the truth is a rare thing for investigators to find, and easy for them to overlook when it is presented. Operation Paget concluded the Andenson's fiat being involved in the tunnel crash was extremely unlikely due to the car's condition, and the fact Anderson had so openly disposed of it. French police had examined Anderson's car as a part of their effort to trace the one that had come into contact with the Mercedes, with a view to prosecuting the driver for failing to render assistance, and had reached the same conclusion. The French police spent a year after the crash searching for the vehicle and eliminated over 4,000 white Fiat Unos from their inquiry. Operation Paget decided it would be unlikely renewed inquiries would, would identify the vehicle involved as such a long period had elapsed since the crash, nearly ten years. 
it concluded the threat of prosecution for a custodial offense probably deterred the driver from coming forward at the time. A retired major in the French brigade criminel, Jean-Claude Mules, gave evidence to the British inquest in February 2008. Andenson had been interviewed by French police in February of 98 and had been able to provide documentary evidence about his movements on the previous 30th and 31st of August, which had satisfied them that he couldn't have been the driver of the Fiat Uno involved. These demonstrated that Andenson could only have been at his home in Liniere, 177 miles from Paris, at the time of the crash. Elizabeth, his widow, said at the London inquest in February of 2008 that her husband had been at home in bed with her at the time of the crash. Operation Paget found no evidence Andenson was known to any security service, and contrary to Al Fayed's claims, his death was thoroughly investigated by French police, although the whereabouts of the car keys has never been explained. Tales of a blinding white flash which occurred just as the Mercedes entered the tunnel have persisted, as well as reports, as we already know, that the Mercedes was bumped by a white Fiat Uno, which, paint samples proved, did clip the limo, and that has fueled the speculation that the crash was engineered. It has been suggested that the bright light may have come from the Fiat or from another car, blinding Henri Paul, allowing him to become temporarily blinded, causing him to lose control. Was it a camera flash? Was it brighter? Running cars off roads and into fatal crashes is known as a long-standing tactic for assassinations. It's very likely that the flash the people reported was actually the speed camera mounted over the tunnel entrance. We know it was operative because we have the picture. I posted it at Facebook forward slash 1001 Heroes. What about the sole survivor, you might be asking, Trevor Reese Jones? Surely he can shed some light upon what really happened to cause the crash. Trevor was Mr. Al-Fayed's bodyguard and was sitting in the front seat at the time of the devastating collision in the Point d'Alma tunnel early in the morning of August 31, 1997. When emergency workers arrived at the wreckage, they discovered that Diana and Mr. Reese Jones were alive, albeit with serious injuries. They would both be taken to Pitay-Salpetrier Hospital, and Princess Diana, who arrived for emergency treatment first, would be pronounced dead within hours. Although the hospital was only three miles away, it took one hour and ten minutes to get there. Unlike the UK and some other countries, France's emergency ambulance teams try to save the life of the badly injured passengers while at the scene and while en route to the hospital. In this case, they had to stop twice to administer support due to Diana's blood pressure dropping to near-death levels. One story which has come out but has received little attention involves the change of doctors at the PRIS hospital. One of the French surgeons at the Pate Salpetrier Hospital, where Diana was received, privately claimed that expectations for her survival were apparently good when she was brought in. However, when a British medical team was brought in and the local staff was relieved and ordered from the room, Diana was unexpectedly pronounced dead shortly after their arrival. You can imagine the speculation that took place when that was discovered, especially with the arriving staff ordering the local physicians to leave the room. As the story goes, the surgeon who revealed this story died in a strange car accident shortly afterward, and his wife soon disappeared as well. And you wonder why people have conspiracy doubts. Although Mr. Reese Jones was conscious, he was trapped inside the wreckage and was suffering from severe facial trauma. 
The roof of their Mercedes had to be cut away by firefighters before he too could be taken to the hospital. Mr. Reese Jones was sedated for almost two weeks after the crash. It was likely the deployment of his airbag that saved his life. In the mid-2000s, expert witnesses told a Metropolitan Police investigation that Mr. Reese Jones had a very limited recall of what happened immediately before and after the crash, and this was unlikely to ever change. Dr. Maurice Lipsedge, a psychiatrist, had said, Trevor Reese Jones remembers getting into the Mercedes in the Rue Cambone and the car driving off. He remembers nothing after that. A few snatches might come back to him, but his memories are not at all reliable, but even for him, it is impossible to tell if these are genuine memories or reconstructions of events from information he might have had later, like dreams or imagination. The conclusion that Mr. Reese Jones had suffered memory loss was challenged by Mohammed Al-Fayed, Dodi's father. The elder Al-Fayed had claimed the bodyguard knew exactly what happened before the Mercedes entered the tunnel, as well as details the security services were eager to suppress. Although Mr. Reese Jones was eager to return to work, he resigned from his job with Mr. Al-Fayed in April of 1998 on the advice of his solicitors. The bodyguard later claimed that he had felt pressured by the business magnet to remember what had happened, and he couldn't. In 2000, Mr. Reese Jones published his memoirs entitled The Bodyguard Story, Diana, The Crash, and The Sole Survivor. Mr. Al-Fayed further alleged that this book was a tissue of lies and had actually been written by the security services in an attempt to support the British authorities' conclusion that Diana and Doty had died in a simple traffic accident. The British police inquiry set up in 2004 to investigate conspiracy theories surrounding Diana's death concluded there was no evidence that Mr. Reese Jones remembered the crash, nor was there evidence that the security services were involved in the production of his book but it seems as if they were just repeating the answer they had determined from the start. Operation Paget opened up more doubts and inquiries and helped add critical details and substance to the investigation. Mr. Al-Fayed had also claimed that the bodyguard had been given a senior job in United Nations security as an inducement to ensure his continued silence. Another claim dismissed by Operation Paget, which had to wait until nearly ten years after the crash to get rolling. Mr. Reese Jones has given very few interviews in the years since the crash, keeping out of the public eye. According to The Sun, he now lives in Shropshire after holding several roles abroad, with friends telling the newspaper he had done really well for himself by working in Texas as a security director for the American oil company Halliburton. As we mentioned in Part 1, in 2003, Diana's butler Paul Burrell published a note that he had claimed had been written by Diana in 1995, in which there were allegations that her former husband was planning an accident in Diana's car, which would involve brake failure and a serious head injury, so that, as she wrote, he could marry again. As we've mentioned, but it bears mentioning again, a special Metropolitan Police Inquiry team was established in 2004 called Operation Paget, and that was headed by Commissioner John Stevens, to investigate the various conspiracy theories which led up to the British inquest. That investigation looked into 175 conspiracy claims that had been made by Fayed. Among the witnesses questioned was Prince Charles, who in 2005 told Stevens that he did not know about his former wife's note from 1995 and could not understand why she had those feelings. Fayed has persistently propounded what were found to be conspiracy theories at the inquest, 
and has repeatedly claimed that he believes his son was murdered with Diana. Operation Paget uncovered evidence that Princess Diana believed efforts would be made to arrange for her to be involved in a car crash. She expressed her concerns in a meeting with her lawyer, Victor Mishkan, and Private Secretary Patrick Jeffson on October 30, 1995, and the attorney made a note of what was said. The Paget report stated, He, Mishkan, wrote that the Princess of Wales had told him that reliable sources, whom she did not wish to name, had informed her that by April of 1996, whether in an accident in her car, such as a pre-prepared brake failure or by other means, efforts would be made, if not to get rid of her, then at least to see that she was so injured or damaged as to be declared unbalanced. The Princess of Wales apparently believed that there was a conspiracy, and that both she and Camilla Parker Bowles were to be put aside, as she put it. Into the void, as planned, she wrote, would step Tiggy, Charles's son's former nanny, Tiggy Leg Bork. Diana went on to say that Camilla was nothing but a decoy. So, she wrote, we are being used by the men in every conceivable way. As history has turned out, Charles stuck with Camilla. The report added, he, Mishkan, did not believe that what she was saying was credible and sought a private word with Patrick Jeffson, who, to Lord Mishkan's surprise, said that he did half-believe the accuracy of her remarks regarding her safety. Charles was interviewed by Lord Stevens under a great deal of secrecy as part of the Metropolitan Police's pageant inquiry. The interview began with Stevens producing a copy of Diana's note to Burrell and reading it out loud. He obviously had to repeat the allegation that the prince had wanted to harm or kill his wife and dump his then-mistress Camilla Parker Bowles. At the time the Stevens interview took place, the prince had married Camilla. Stephen's first question after reading the note was, "'Why do you think she wrote this, sir?' Charles replied, "'I did not know anything about the note until it was published in the media.' Stevens asked, "'So you didn't discuss this with her, sir?' The answer, "'No, I didn't know it existed.' "'Do you know why the princess had these feelings, sir?' "'No, I don't.' And that pretty well covered the interview." It was the 1995 BBC interview with Martin Bashir, for which he and the BBC have been heavily criticized, due mostly to the methods they used to deceive Diana to get the interview, and it was that interview that brought Diana's intense dissatisfaction with her marriage to the public eye. This is a story in itself, and doesn't contribute to the investigation regarding Diana's death, but her dissatisfaction, as well as her increasing concern that she was being targeted for a very bad event, that would leave her mentally unstable or dead, did factor into the theory that the accident was prearranged. She had shared her feelings that there was a conspiracy to murder her with her closest friends. Operation Paget did look into the matter, but as you would expect, they didn't come up with a scrap of evidence which led to a plot on her life. One of the paths to a possible conspiracy led to a former MI6 agent named Tomlinson, and this is often called the Tomlinson Matter. Richard Tomlinson, a former MI6 officer who was dismissed from the intelligence services and later served five months in prison for breaching the Official Secrets Act of 1989, claimed in a sworn statement to the French inquiry in May of 1999 that Britain's MI6 had been involved in the crash, suggesting that the security service had documentation which would assist Judge Stephen in his inquiry. The previous August, he had been reported by the BBC to have claimed that Paul was working for the security services and that one of Diana's bodyguards, either Trevor Reese jones now known as Trevor Reese, 
or Kess Wingfield was a contact for British intelligence. Tomlinson alleged that MI6 was monitoring Diana before her death, had told Mohammed Al-Fayed that Paul was an MI6 agent, and that her death mirrored plans he saw in 1992 for the assassination of the President of Serbia, Slobodan Milosevic, using a strobe light to blind his chauffeur. On February 13, 2008, Tomlinson told the inquest that he may have misremembered, and that he had no evidence that Paul was an MI6 agent but he had said in the previous day's court session that Paul was supplying MI6 with information, this being the Mercedes-Benz driver, Henri Paul. Speaking by video link from France, Tomlinson conceded that, after the interval of 16 or 17 years, he could not remember specifically whether the document he had seen during 1992 had in fact proposed the use of a strobe light to cause a traffic crash as a means of assassinating Milosevic, although use of lights for this purpose had been covered in his MI6 training. The Operation Pageant inquiry was given unprecedented access to the offices of both MI5 and MI6 to investigate Tomlinson's claims. It was later revealed that the mentioned memo was a proposal written in March of 93 to assassinate another Serbian figure if he gained power, not Milosevic. Furthermore, the plan did not involve anything about using flashlights. Further evidence discrediting Tomlinson's claims was found in drafts of a book he was writing about his time in MI6 before he was jailed in 98 for breaching the Official Secrets Act, which means adding things to the book he never should have added. The draft, dating from 1996, referred to the memo and contained none of the detail about a staged car crash with flashlights or strobe lights in a tunnel. The inquiry concluded by dismissing Tomlinson's claims as an embellishment. It went on to comment that this embellishment was largely responsible for giving rise to the theories Diana was murdered. Tomlinson was arrested by French authorities in July of 06 as part of their inquiry into the death of Diana. French police were also reported to have seized computer files and personal papers from his home in Cannes. It should be mentioned that it would make no sense at all for Britain's MI6 to become involved in any type of plot to kill a member of the royal family. There are many persons with diverse talents who either cooperate with, provide information to, or provide special services, such as photography, intelligence, or surveillance services, to MI6. These people form a widely scattered network and are hired as temporary contractors. They know nothing of MI6 operations that do not concern them. Tomlinson's claims to know anything outside of his realm of participation looks very much like an attempt to gain the type of notoriety that can sell books. One of the main motives which has been advanced for alleged murder includes suggestions Diana was pregnant with Mohammed Dodi Fayed's child, and the couple were about to get engaged. The alleged dislike of the idea of a non-Christian within the British royal family meant such a relationship between the mother of the future king and the Egyptian Muslim would not be tolerated. In Mohammed al-Fayed's view, which he repeated in court at the inquest in February of 08. Prince Philip, the Prince of Wales, Diana's sister Lady Sarah McCorkadale, and numerous others were all involved in a plot to kill the princess and his son. Jeffrey Steinberg of the Executive Intelligence Review, a publication of the American Lyndon LaRouche movement, had also put forward theories that the Princess of Wales was murdered by the security services under the instructions of Prince Philip. An article in the Daily Telegraph in 1998 reporting the EIR conspiracy theories alleged earlier links between the EIR and Al-Fayed. 
while Francis Wien reported the following year that Al-Fayed's spokesman had advised journalists to contact Steinberg. Closed-caption TV evidence shown at the inquest indicates that Doty left Alberto Reposi Jewelers on the 30th of August with nothing more than a catalog. Reposi said in 2003 that the ring had been placed on Diana's finger in a St. Tropez hotel and was being resized for future collection in Paris, but later admitted to writer Martin Gregory that he had received legal papers from Al-Fayed, a client for more than 20 years. Al-Fayed said the couple chose the ring in Monte Carlo, and Doty had picked it up in Paris the day before he died, after it had been altered. This statement of Al-Fayed was contradicted by the statements of Claude Roulet, a shop assistant, and the CCTV footage. A CCTV recording demonstrated that a ring had been selected by a Ritz Hotel official. It was bought by Mohammed Al-Fayed after the couple's death. A few hours before the crash, on the afternoon of August 30th, Diana's journalist friend Richard Kay received a call on his mobile phone from Diana in which she asked about what was likely to appear in the following day's Sunday papers about her. During this call, she made no mention of any announcement she intended to make. More revealing was the statement given by Diana's eldest sister, Lady Sarah McCorkadale, who testified that in a phone conversation with Diana on Friday, August 29th, Diana spoke about Dodi Fayed in a manner that gave her sister the impression the relationship was on stony ground. Statements from other friends and confidants Diana spoke to in the week before her death, including her butler Paul Burrell, her friend Lady Annabel Goldsmith, and her spiritual advisor Rita Rogers, were unanimous that she was firm about not wanting to get engaged or married to anyone at that point in her life. A week before she died, the princess had told Goldsmith, I need marriage like I need a rash on my face. Diana's former private secretary, Patrick Jeffson, said to the BBC in reaction to the publication of the Operation Paget report in December of 06 that her facial expression in the CCTV footage of her at the Paris Ritz on her final evening with Doty was one she would wear when she was disgruntled with the situation. However, CCTV images released on 6th of October, taken just minutes before their deaths, showed a relaxed Diana and Doty affectionately holding hands. An inquiry witness was Haznat Khan, a Muslim heart surgeon of Pakistani origin based in London, who had a relationship with Diana for two years. Diana had explored the possibility of marriage with him. This had been met with no opposition from the royal family, and Prince Charles had given his blessing. Khan stated that he had received some racist hate mail from members of the public because of the relationship, but had no reason to take what he said in his hate mail seriously. He also stated that he felt the relationship was not opposed by the royal family or any other branch of the British government, including the security services. Paul Burrell stated that Diana was still not over her breakup with Khan at the time of her death. It was also pointed out that Doty and Diana had only met just under seven weeks before the crash at Alfayed's villa in Saint-Tropez on July 14th, meaning there were only 47 days from their first meeting until the night of the crash. Of those days, their schedules permitted them to be together for an absolute maximum of 35 days. From analysis of Diana's actual movements, it is likely they had spent approximately 23 days together before the crash. John McNamara, a former senior detective at Scotland Yard, headed Al-Fayed's own investigation for five years, from 1997. Cross-examined at the inquest on February 14th, he conceded that he had found no evidence of a criminal conspiracy to kill the princess, or that she was engaged 
or pregnant at the time of her death, apart from the claims Al-Fayed had relayed to him. One other pro-assassination plot was revealed in 2013, 16 years after the crash. The court-martial of SAS sniper Danny Nightingale led to a letter written by witness Soldier N and sent to his in-laws coming to wider attention. SAS is short for Special Air Service, which is a classified special operations unit for Britain. Soldier N, Nightingale's former roommate, was in prison for illegally hiding firearms and ammunition. On August 17, 2013, the Metropolitan Police announced that they were reviewing evidence that Soldier N had boasted that the SAS were behind the death of Princess Diana. The parents of Soldier N's estranged wife reportedly wrote to the SAS's commanding officer, claiming Soldier N had told his wife the unit arranged Diana's death and it was covered up. The information was reportedly passed into Scotland Yard by the Royal Military Police. However, Scotland Yard stressed that this information would not lead to a reinvestigation and that they were examining its relevance and credibility. They also confirmed that Prince Charles and Mohammed al-Fayed were being kept informed as preliminary examination progressed. At the end of November 2013, Scotland Yard ended its study of the SAS allegations and released a statement. The Metropolitan Police Service has scoped the information and is in the process of drawing up conclusions, which will be communicated to the families and interested parties first, before any further comment can be made. On December 16th, it emerged from Sky News reports that there was no credible evidence that the SAS was involved in the death of the princess and the others, and thus no reason to reopen the investigation. Lord Justice Baker began his summing up of the results of the investigation into Diana's death to the jury on March 31, 2008. He opened by telling the jury, No one except you and I, and, I think, the gentleman in the public gallery, with Diana and Fayed painted on his forehead, sat through every word of evidence, and concluded that there was not a shred of evidence that Diana's death had been ordered by Prince Philip or organized by the security services. He concluded his summing up on Wednesday, April 2, 2008. After summing up, the jury retired to consider five verdicts, namely unlawful killing by the negligence of either or both the following vehicles or Henri Paul. Accidental death, or an open verdict. The jury decided on April 7th that Diana had been unlawfully killed by the grossly negligent driving of the following vehicles, the paparazzi and the Mercedes driver Henri Paul. Princes William and Harry released a statement in which they said that they agree with their verdicts and are both hugely grateful. Mohammed Al-Fayed also said that he would accept the verdict and abandon his 10-year campaign to prove that Diana and Doty were murdered in a conspiracy. The cost of the inquiry exceeded £12.5 million. The coroner's inquest cost £4.5 million. A further £8 million was spent on the Metropolitan Police investigation. It lasted six months and heard 250 witnesses, with the cost heavily criticized in the media. In review here, it looks very much like a tragic auto accident which involved two vehicles, one of which, the Fiat, was very likely the actual cause. The biggest unanswered question, to me at least, is those two black cars seen parked and empty right near the crash site. Followed up with, where are the tunnel camera photos from that front tunnel camera that did manage to snap a photo of Henri Paul, Trevor Reese Jones, and the princess just as the Mercedes entered the tunnel? Where are the photos showing those two black vehicles and the white Fiat? To me, 
Those are the biggest unanswered questions, and hopefully someday we'll hear the answers. Thanks for joining us for part two of Princess Diana's Death. We appreciate your reviews, and the easiest for us to find are those we get from Apple listeners. We appreciate your sharing our show with others, and we also ask you to enjoy some of our other shows we have out there, including 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories, and The Best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. All great stories. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with another great episode here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.